In the back, I have some prayer cards still. So I know many of you picked one up this morning. If you have a regular prayer time for missionaries, please pray for us. We would greatly appreciate that. Mark chapter 8. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Mark 8, 9, and 10. And some of you are like, oh, Brent, I want to get out of here eventually. I, I do too. But I'm going to show you something very interesting, very something very unique. Jesus, In fact, the outline is going to be the same in Mark 8, 9, and 10. The disciples are going to misunderstand. Uh, well, first of all, Jesus is going to give a prediction about his death. The disciples are going to misunderstand. And Jesus is going to use that to teach about discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? And let's stop right here and just talk about for a second. What does it mean to follow Christ? Let me ask you a question. Is salvation free? Yes. Not a trick question. Whosoever will may come. Drink of the water of life freely. It is a free gospel. But let's look in the gospels and we'll see here. You've got to deny yourself. In fact, look at Mark chapter 8. Look what it says there. Whosoever, verse 34, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's kind of costly, doesn't it sound like? One old writer from years ago, he's in heaven now, he used to say it like this, salvation is free, discipleship is costly. Salvation is free, discipleship is costly. And there's an aspect to it that you can be saved. And many good men differ on this, but you can be saved and really almost do nothing. Your life will be like wood, hay, and stubble. The Bible calls them, the New Testament calls them carnal Christians. And in fact, Lot is mentioned in the New Testament as well. If Lot's name weren't mentioned as being a just man, I wouldn't think he was just. I wouldn't think he's a saved man. What did Lot do that was great for God? Mm, His whole life is pretty much negative. He lost. He lost everything. But Lot's this example of a man who basically he was righteous because the Bible says so, but he kind of bombed out. And so many of God's people fail in this matter of discipleship. And I'll just be honest with you. Being a disciple is one of the toughest things to do. Following Christ passionately, as we'll see tonight, is challenging. And the stories we're going to look at tonight really begin to ask us questions. Like this morning, if you were in Sunday school this morning, the question that was asked to Zechariah, should we keep on fasting? Should we keep on feasting? Why are you doing it in the first place? When we understand what's happening here in Mark 8, 9, and 10, it it asks a personal question, a very important personal question. And so I'm going to ask us all to be honest and ask us to be truthful with the text. Now, let me say this as well. Good men differ, and perhaps you've heard the term lordship of Christ. Uh, There's radio teachers and Bible teachers that I believe are saved men that would say, basically just the opposite of what I would say. Well, there is no difference between salvation and discipleship. And they would basically say that salvation and discipleship, if you're not following Christ passionately, you're not saved. Well, I can't say that from the New Testament. I can't. There's others that would say that, well, you're just saved and you don't have to do anything. God never calls you or asks you anything else. You're just saved. Well, well, I, I can't say because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. There's a delicate balance of fine. There's a middle road there. It's called the Bible. And we're not going to be lordship, nor are we, and you could place different names on that. Some have called it like an easy believism or whatever. The the nomenclature gets kind of difficult there. But I'm not one of these that says, if you come to Christ, you can come any way you want, when you want, how you want. No, 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 no. 
when we come to Christ, there's a radical transformation within. And so there's a divine balance that you and I should be growing. We should be disciples. He invites us to follow him. Let me ask you, do we always follow Christ? No. Not a trick question. No, I don't either. Does that call into question our salvation? No. But there's an aspect of this that you and I, since we are saved, should want to follow Christ. Would you agree with me? So what does it mean to follow Christ? Look here what it says in Mark chapter 8, verse number 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Now let's stop right here. We've got the background, this great confession of Peter's. And Peter's being kind of the spokesman for the disciples, as we'll see. The background, they're in Caesarea Philippi, which is a pagan city. There's idols everywhere. It's a Roman idolater center. And so when Peter says, thou art the Christ, was Peter accurate? Yes, he was. Not a trick question. He was, he's accurate. And look what it says in verse 30. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, of scribes, and be killed And after three days, rise again. Okay, pause for a second. Verse 31. How many of you think you understand what Jesus is saying there? Can I see your hand? Pretty obvious, right? We we have 2,000 years of church history. We can look back. Seems like pretty obvious. Look what happens next. Verse 32. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Did you catch who he looked at and then rebuked? He looked at the disciples, and then he rebuked Peter. So Peter here is being the spokesperson for the disciples. The other disciples are kind of like, I'm not going to say this, but what are you talking about, Jesus? And Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't doing that, Jesus. Now, to us, it sounds pretty silly that there would be a man that would reprimand the Son of God. But Peter's like, no, 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 you're the Christ. And we'll see in the next two chapters but that what the men meant when you're the Christ is you're the Messiah. You're the one that's going to come and overthrow the tyranny of the Roman government. You're going to bring peace to Jerusalem. You're going to do this for us. And secretly, we're going to get a position of reward in this. It will play itself out in the next two chapters. You'll see it. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord, you're not going to do that. Jesus looked at the disciples and then turned to Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What is this saying? That the men that were following Jesus closely, the men that, yes, 11 of them would one day turn the world upside down. These are not malcontents and, and, and horrible people. These are the men that would one day turn the world upside down. What were they doing? They were savoring the things that be of men. They were following Christ for the wrong reason. If it's possible for the disciples who right now at this point in Mark 8, 9, and 10, they've been traveling with Jesus almost three years. If it's possible for the disciples to miss the reason, 
Well, don't you think it's possible for you and I to miss the reason? Yeah. And so Jesus uses this to teach on discipleship. Disciples aren't getting it, and he uses this. Notice the verbiage here. This is important, verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples, also he said unto them. Now, who's here listening? I just read it for you. Who's here? Who is Jesus called and who is Jesus talking to? Disciples and people. That's important. We know from other places in Scripture that uh, at times large multitudes. So it's quite possible that there's some of the 120 disciples that followed Jesus that he sent out, that he commissioned. It's possible that obviously the disciples are here, the 12 are here, but there's people here. And Jesus did something oftentimes. We see this in Luke chapter 12 as well. He could use one phrase, and he could both use that phrase to convict the unsaved of their need, the Pharisees particularly, as well as use that same phrase to help encourage disciples and challenge disciples. And he does that here. It's really interesting. Look what it says here. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, pause right there. We oftentimes see people carrying the cross as part of our religious literature. Take up your cross, follow me. But stop and think about it for a second. If you were carrying a cross in the first century, where were you headed? To die. So Jesus says, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When he says, I want you to follow me, when you, if you want to follow me, and yeah, you can, what is he asking you and I to do? Die. Aren't you glad you came to Sunday night church? Isn't this exciting? Doesn't just this thrill your soul? I came tonight to get encouraged, and the preacher's saying I have to die. Yeah, you've got to die. This is where it gets costly. And there's aspects here that I want to be careful with that I, I you know, is challenging because there is an aspect that because he's talking to people here that perhaps aren't saved perhaps are just kind of interested in a free meal and he says hey if you're going to follow christ it's going to be costly because if you come to christ you got to die to your religion you got to die to your good works as we said this morning you have to declare bankruptcy i can't i don't have it I, I don't have what is necessary to earn eternal life. And there's an aspect of even salvation that is costly for our pride. Some of us have been saved so long that we forgot the struggle. But some of you, maybe even recently, you knew the struggle. You saw the struggle because it was pride that was keeping you from Christ. What's the first thing that is going to not, not be in heaven according to, to the book of Revelation? The fearful, the unbelieving. Those who, well, I, don't, I, don't, I, got, I don't want people not to think bad of me because I, they think I'm saved. Uh, hey, that's, that's pride. That's fear. And so Jesus says here, if you're going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But for the believers here tonight, there's also the fact that he's talking to disciples here. Disciples who already believed, as we just read, you're the Christ. You're the one. They are already saved men, we would say. And so what does he say to them? Got to take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. It's costly. How many of you ever carried a big piece of wood, a big log? Yeah. Tried to move a railroad tie or a timber out of the place, or maybe you had it on your shoulder. Let me ask you this. Did you have another agenda while you had that thing on your shoulder? No. You had one focus. Have any of you ever moved a piano? 
yeah, there's this. I've learned piano moving is one of those things that people make all sorts of excuses about, won't they? You oftentimes have to bribe people and say, hey, what you doing Saturday? Oh, nothing. Good. I'll need you. I got pizza at the house. Oh, really? We're moving a piano. Oh, <laughs> type deal. When you're moving a piano, when you're doing something heavy, do you take detours? Oh, look, there's a garage sale down the street. Let's take the piano and go to the garage sale. Oh, let's go to the mall. Let's go to the store. Do you take the, is that what you do? No, you've got one focus, one goal, one drive. You're headed one way. Why? Because you're under load. You don't t- stop for detours. And when Jesus says, take up your cross, picture with me mentally. I don't have a cross in here, but picture with, with me a large beam, a couple hundred pounds perhaps, that he is dragging along. He doesn't have his own will now. He is under the Roman government's control. He is headed to die. He doesn't get to take detours to go uh, smell the roses. He doesn't get to go stop and get a pop. He doesn't get to do that. He is headed one direction. He no longer has a will. And that's the essence essence of discipleship. It's costly. You and I die to ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we go up on a hill somewhere and we live in a convent or a nunnery and we wear funny clothes and we don't have any sort of life. No, no, no. It means that our life is no longer our own. What I want to do, it no longer matters. It's about God. It's about his life. It's about his, what he wants to do with me. Because I've died to myself. There is no more Brent Gellis. There's Jesus. And I'm his passionate disciple. I'm his follower. And that's what disciple means. It's a learner. It's a scholar. It's a follower. It's one who passionately pursues. We get passionate about a lot of things like sports. And sometimes guys will get so passionate about sports or cars. They'll be able to cite all these figures. And my truck makes 360 horsepower and 660 foot pounds of torque. And it has this kind of curve. And we learn all these worthless figures. We're disciple of diesel. But yet, so often we struggle following Christ passionately. It's costly. You want to follow Christ tonight? You die. Well, Brent, that's not very encouraging. I came tonight to get encouraged. It's the Bible. Jesus calls you and I to die. Yes, there's salvation aspect of it. That salvation is free, but you have to be willing to surrender your religion and say, no, I can't. I'm trusting Jesus freely. It's costly in that matter, but for the disciples, it's free. Oh, there's my Bible. Look again what it says there, beginning in verse number uh, 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel is the same shall save it. And there's aspects about salvation and discipleship here in the same verse. If you keep your life and say, no, I'm not going to trust God, what happens? You what? You lose. But for God's children as well, if we keep our life, we don't surrender it all on the altar and we say, I can do better than God can. What happens? We lose. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. You lose your life in God's kingdom plan. You lose your life in what he has accomplished, wants us to accomplish. You actually gain it. You give it away, that's when you actually have it again. I've got really good friends. They're like second grandparents to me. I, in fact, I lived with them after, I, after college for a little bit. Helped build their house. The type of folks, they would give anything away. Well, they had this old schoolhouse that they had converted. And uh, middle of the night, one Saturday night, I think it was, 
they heard this roaring sound. They had no idea what it was because they were insulated. And sure enough, they lost the whole schoolhouse to fire. They were not able to have insurance because no one would insure them because it was kind of a weird, weird structure. But they were the type of people that had given so much away. They realized later on that that was a blessing because so many people, after they heard about the fire, gave them so much stuff back. Hey, you gave this bookcase to me uh, years ago. And they were the type of people that gave cars away. Oh, you need a car? Here. Here's the title. Here's the keys. Take it. They gave so much away, and they made the statement. I've never forgotten it. I visited with them a few weeks ago, and it's still a beautiful house that God gave them completely that free. Amazing story. But they made the statement like this. They said, you know, Brent, the only things now that we have after the fire are what we gave away. Yeah. The only things you and I truly have are what we give away. You hang on to it, you lose it. You give it, you keep it. That's convoluted wisdom. But that's exactly what Jesus says. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Verse 36. There, that's definitely directed toward the people who are the unsaved, who are getting them to stop and think, hey, what if you gain the whole world? And what if you have all the positions and the money and the power and the prestige, and yet you don't have Christ? What do you have? Nothing. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing you can give that's so much value. The soul is so valuable. Verse 38, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in glory of his Father with the holy angels. You've got to be willing to confess. Discipleship is costly because you die. Discipleship is costly because you lose. Discipleship is costly because you must proclaim. And there's so much in each of these that we could unpack further. But let's just sum it up and say that discipleship is costly. It costs us our our view of ourselves. It costs us our pride. It costs us our standing sometimes in the community. It costs us uh, our respect sometimes because to follow Christ means that sometimes we lose in people's eyes. How many of us here, and let's be honest, this is all of us, how many of us here have known and sensed God leading us to talk to someone about their soul and we didn't because we were fearful of what that person may think about us? We've all done it. Jesus says, you follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So if you're not fishing for men, you're not following Jesus. Discipleship is not just a course you take in church. It's not a Sunday school, 12-week Sunday school plan that the pastor goes through. We're going to go through a discipleship course. Oh, yeah, basics of the fundamental faith. Those are helpful. Those are good. That's not what it means to be a disciple. Oh, I, I, yeah, I'm a disciple, Brent. I went through a discipleship course. No, a disciple is a lifelong dead death to self. It's a, not me. It's not my own. And this practically plays out that it's the church that gets the priority, not my needs, not my house, not my 401K. It's God's church. It's God's plan. It's my family as a father, as a husband. It's my wife that gets the love. It's not me. We all love ourselves, don't we? Yeah, we do. I loved myself a little bit too much at the lunch table this afternoon. It was, it was great. Maybe some of us know what that's like. We, we're blessed. We rode to church. We're in a nice building. This is heated and air-conditioned. We, we like ourselves. You know what discipleship is saying? It's not about me. It's not about my drives. It's not about my wants. It's not about what I view as best. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my preferences. It's not about my anything. It's about Christ. He hung on a cross I can go the distance for him. It's costly. 
You follow Christ, and it will cost everything you and I have. And for many of God's people, yes, save people. Oh, Brent, you know, I'm really thankful for salvation. I am. I'm really thankful for the fact that Christ died for me. But you know, this, I've got a good job. I make a lot of money. We've got a nice house. You know, the kids are, we got all the kids all situated, and we got the 401k settled, and we got, the, we got it all paid off. And, you know, this following Christ, make it a little radical. So, you know, I, I'll support others. I'll give my funds to missionaries so they can go be disciples. They can go follow Christ. But, you know, I'm, I like my comfort. You keep your life, you what? You lose it. But you lose your life for the gospel's sake. You actually find it. That's where you get it. Discipleship is costly. Secondly, look at Mark chapter 9. We'll see another truth here. Similar set of circumstances. Verse number 30. Mark 9, verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now let me ask you this question, a simple question. How many of you understand verse 31? Yeah. Seems pretty straightforward. Look at verse 32. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. Obviously, Mark is getting his information perhaps from Peter. Uh, later, a few years later, perhaps he got it firsthand from, we don't know exactly, but it was, this is inspired. And in fact, this, is, this story is in all the Gospels. And all of them have a little bit different view of it, but it's, it's in all the Gospels. And it's incredible how you can research this out. They didn't understand and were afraid to ask him. Look at verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? So he gets to the house and says, hey, what were you guys talking about? But they held their peace, verse 34. But they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed amongst themselves who should be the greatest. So they're arguing, I'm going to be the greatest. And everyone's like, uh-uh, I'm going to be the greatest. When we get and when Jesus overthrows this Roman government, I'm going to be the prime minister. You may be like the janitor down in the hall closet or something. I'm going to be the greatest. I've done more for Christ than you have. They're disputing amongst themselves who should be the greatest. They get to the house and Jesus looks at them and says, "Hey, along the wayside, what were you talking about?" <laughs> and the disciples held their peace. Oh, it, it was nothing. No, it, we are just. We're talking about sports. Wait, that's nothing, Jesus. Or I just chewing the fat. And Jesus, knowing their heart, used it. So do you see the similar thing? Jesus gives a prediction of his death, his suffering. The disciples don't understand it. Jesus uses it to teach on discipleship. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the who? Okay, who was in Mark 8? People and the 12. People and the disciples. Here in Mark 9 and 10, it's just the 12, and you'll see a difference here. It's a little bit different. Look at verse, verse number 35. He sat down and called the 12 and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Discipleship is not only costly, following Christ, secondly, is humbling. It's humbling. 
And he took a child, verse 36, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. We know the story. In fact, this is recorded in all the Gospels here. Jesus takes the little children, and he calls the little children to come unto him. And if you go to a lot of Bible preaching churches, and even Protestant churches, broad churches, you go to their Sunday school rooms, you know what you'll see? You'll see pictures of Jesus with the children, right? And Jesus is usually this long-haired hippie in this white robe because that's actually exactly how he dressed. That's, yeah. And the children are all these neat Sunday school kids, and they're nice. The girls are in their nice little dresses. The boys have their nice three-piece suits on, and they're all just skipping through the forest with Jesus. Can you picture the picture with me? Can, can, have you seen that? Yeah. Not the way it works. Okay. Without being graphic or gross, children in eastern countries are not worshipped like they are here in the West. Children are worshipped here? Yeah, look at Sunday afternoon t-ball games. These kids can't, they, they can't even find a, they don't even know how to get out of their own house. And here we are praising them and worshipping them and giving them medals at the age of three. And then we wonder why they, the time they get 17, 18, why they have complexes. Hmm. What was I given at three? Work and helpings. I think that actually was a better plan because that was Bible. That's free. I won't charge you for that. But we worship our kids here in the West. They don't most other places in the world. Typically, in the Arabic cultures, even today, in the African cultures, in the Eastern cultures, and even in the Asian cultures, in the poor Asian cultures, children run amok. You go down to Mexico, whoo, man, and they're nasty. They're just nasty. And I know that sounds, well, Brent, these are nice, beautiful little children. Yes, God loves them. But there's some of them are revolting because they, they don't really care about cleanness. And without being descriptive, they, they don't have, okay, back in Bible days, they didn't have huggies. They didn't. Now, don't let your imagination go to, but you get the picture. These are nasty little rugrats. That you don't, you, they kind of, they, they use sticks with them in Africa. I've been there and been like, oh, that really affronted me. But, you know, it's little roving bands of marauders type deal. They're just nasty. And I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love the children. All he does. But what does he do that really shocks the disciples that the disciples remember this? He picks one up and he sets him on his lap. Now, let me ask you this. How do you pick up a child? Is that how you do it? Okay, the child's running to you, and I'm six foot four, and the child's running to me. I pick up the child. Come here. Is that how you do it? What do I have to do? I've got to go down. I've got to get low. I go down into the dirt, pick up this child, and I set this child on my lap. No doubt Jesus got a little dirt on him from this little rug rat. And every disciple remembered this. And this became part of what Jesus was teaching here. He says, hey, in order to be following Christ, you've got to be last. You've got to go down. You've got to be humble. And he used the illustration of a child, sitting a child on his lap. What are children? In fact, the parallel passage in Matthew says, in order to follow Christ, in order to be his disciple, you've got to become like a child. What do, chi- well, what do children do? They simply believe. They're humble. They don't come around strutting their stuff. Well, I've been following Christ. I've been faithful for decades and decades. No, they're just, hey, how are you? 
they don't really care. They don't have a pretense. They're honest. If they're not feeling good, they tell you. If you don't believe me, go to Walmart. You'll see it. Or go in my van sometimes. You'll see it too. But children are honest. They don't know how to put on a show. They don't know how to fool people. They're just simple. They're just, they're, they're, they're real. They're sincere. And Jesus says, you've got to go down to them and you have to become like one of them. To follow me is humbling. It's becoming like a little child. And no doubt, every one of these disciples who's following the master is thinking, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get a position of honor. I'm going to be one of the chosen that God, I followed Jesus faithfully. I've left everything, Jesus, for three and a half years. I've left everything. I'm going to get a position of honor. And Jesus picks up this little child and says, this is what you've got to be like. This was a shock, complete shock. This is not what they're thinking. This is not what they're picturing. This is not what they're, they're just a few seconds earlier. I'm a bit better than you. I'm a, Jesus says, hey, this is what you got to be like, a little child. What about you? What about me? Why do we follow Christ? Discipleship is costly. Secondly, discipleship is humbling. you got to become a little child. It's costly because you got to die. Secondly, it's humbling because you got to become as a little child. And you got to receive the little children. But thirdly, look with me at Mark 10. And obviously, we're not doing full justice to every single one of these passages. But look at Mark 10, verse 32 with me. And they were in the way, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto them. Well, unto him, excuse me. Obviously, they know something's happening now. It's starting to click. Some things are starting to happen. They can sense something is different. They know that something is, is happening within a few short days. Their Messiah, their one that's going to overthrow the Roman government is going to be hanging dead on a cross. Their whole world's going to get turned upside down. And they knew something was different. Notice what Jesus began to teach them in verse 33, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. Okay, let me ask you again, like I have the past two chapters. Do you understand? Do we understand what Jesus is saying here? Yes. Did the disciples still? No. Because look what it says in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Here's James and John. They're asking the Messiah, hey, we want to sit one on your right hand, one on your left hand. And the Messiah, Jesus asked them, are you able to drink of the cup I'm going to drink of? Oh, yeah, we can, we can do it. We got it. We know what we're getting into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Messiah says, you will. He was predicting their own martyrdom here in a few years. You will drink of the cup I'm going to drink of. But to sit on my right hand, left hand, that's not mine to give. 
And notice what he does here, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. And we all say, no kidding. We would too. Verse 42. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. So let's stop right here and make sure we review. In Mark 8, what do we see? Jesus predicts his death. The disciples don't understand. And what does Jesus do? Teach you about discipleship. It's costly. You've got to die. Mark 9, Jesus predicts his death, his suffering. The disciples don't understand. Jesus begins to teach about discipleship. It's humbling. You've got to take a little child, become as a little child. Mark 10, Jesus predicts his death. The most clear description of what Jesus would go through. Here's in these two verses in verse 31 and 32, or 33 and 34. What do the disciples do? They begin to argue. I'm going to be greater. I'm going to be greater. We want to sit on your right hand, left hand. And the disciples, what are you doing, James? What are you? And Jesus begins to use that to teach, hey, hey, hey. This is what it means to follow me. Look what it says here. You know that they that are counted to rule, verse 42, you know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. We're all very aware of the leadership structure that our world exhibits. If you go to school, there's a pecking order. Like it or not, there's a pecking order. And that's any type of classroom. In the family, there's usually a pecking order. In the job, it's pretty clear what the pecking order is. The boss. And then there's guys who think they're the boss. And then there's guys who want to be the boss, who act like they're boss. And there's you and I down here, typically. There's this pecking order, and there's always people trying to step on each other and move themselves up the ladder and try to help themselves out. And perhaps you and I aren't involved in that, but we see that, don't we? We're aware of that. We know that. And Jesus says the Gentiles, the unsaved, the world, they've got their way of system. They've got their leadership structure, and they're always trying to get elected. They're always trying to get motivated, and they're always trying to rise in the, arms of men, rise in the eyes of men. But Jesus says, look at verse 43, but so shall it not be among you. That's the way the world lives. If you're going to follow me, he says to his disciples, hey, the world has its leadership structure. But so shall it not be among you. That's not the way it is. You think about James, the book of James. Who is he? Most Bible scholars say he's the half-brother of Jesus. You know, can you imagine if he could be here? My name is James, and I am the half-brother of Jesus, so please listen to what I have to say. We'd all pay attention, wouldn't we? But that's not how he introduces himself. James, a servant, a doulos, a bond slave. He gave up his titles. And yes, the men had apostleship. They, they, they knew who they were. But you don't hear them calling themselves by their own titles. They, 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 weren't, aware, they weren't really thrilled with who they were. They didn't really care. Because they knew who he was. And after the resurrection, after they had seen the risen Christ, it radically altered their life. Before the crucifixion, I'm going to be greater. God, we want to sit on your right hand, left hand. You don't know what you're asking. Yeah, we do. We can do. No, you don't. And he says, hey, men, the Gentiles have their leadership structure. They try to peck on top of one another, and they got their pecking order, and you, they try to fit in, but so shall it not be among you. That's not the way it is. Yes, discipleship is costly. Discipleship is humbling, but discipleship, as we'll see here in Mark 10, is service. It's going down. Verse number 43. 
but so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your what? Minister. And that's not just talking about the, the, the country pastor. That's the one who serves. You want to be great? Clean the toilets in the church. You want to be great? Go take care of people's needs. Go change some diapers. You want to be great? Go help some people that can't do anything for you. You know, I've been reading James, read James recently. I'm always convicted when I get to chapter 2 and 3. I mentioned this this morning too. We say to those people who have something to give, the people that are nice looking family walking, oh, hey, let's give you some good seats. And then we have other people in the church that are, well, more needy. They, they, they just require a lot. And they, they sap your energy and your finances and your time. And, yeah, and you don't want to answer their phone call because you're just going to get weighed down. And what do we do? We have preference. And James says that ought not to be. Our religion should be real. And here Jesus is saying, hey, the apostles, you're not above anybody. You want to be great? You go minister. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The greatest picture of this occurred just three, four days later. Jesus had a lot to think about the night before he died, don't you think? He had a lot on his plate. He could have, oh, I, need, I, need, I need some time to think. I'm a little stressed right now, guys. I want you to guys take care of the dinner. I, I just need some quiet time. And no one would have faulted him. But what did he do? He girded up his gar, outer garb, and he went down again, and he began to serve. And how did he serve? Washed feet. Now, again, we, we have a Western mindset of washing feet as, oh, yeah, they, their feet got dusty. They were, but the feet washing was not an attractive job. They didn't have sewers in the Middle East in that day. And still to this day in much of the world, you go to it, and the sewer is the street. So there's been many times I've had to wash my tennis shoes very well after being in the Philippines or in Africa. It's nasty. And you're dealing with open-toed shoes, and you get that stuff in your toes. This is a smelly, nasty job. And what did the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the one, as we saw this morning from Colossians 1, who created, sustains, he's the administrator. He is it. He is everything that we need. What did he do? He washed their feet. So why do we think that if we're going to follow Christ, we're going to get a position of honor and recognition and pats on the back? Following Christ is costly. Following Christ is humbling, but following Christ is service. It's dealing with things that are nasty. It's dealing with things that are smelly. Why do we do it? Because we're not following man. We serve the Lord Christ. We're following his example. We're following him. And that's what it means to be a disciple. It means going down to the needy, the, the nasty, the ugly, the, yeah, the disgusting, and taking care of God's people in a way that other people would shun that, well, I don't get any notice. I can't post this on Facebook, so I'm not going to do anything about this. No, it's doing things quietly. That's exactly what our Lord and Savior did. So the question is, we think about Mark 8, 9, and 10. Why do you follow Christ? Are you and I hoping to get something out of this? 
I've been following Christ for decades. Well, you have your reward. We follow Christ because he invites us to. He calls and says, hey, if anyone will come after me, let, I want you to die. I want you to be humble. I want you to be a servant. And we don't have time tonight to get into it, but you go to Luke chapter 12 specifically in the first few verses. He gives incredible promises to those who will passionately, biblically die to themselves and surrender everything they have to follow Christ. How about you? Big question. I find myself identifying more oftentimes with the disciples. I'm going to get something out of this. I'm going to get something. And Jesus was saying, no, discipleship is costly. Discipleship is humbling. Discipleship is service. Who wants to follow Christ? Well, Brent, you know, I like my life. I'm saved. I'm thankful for that. But I'm pretty comfortable. I, I, I don't want to get out. You know, those, those people are kind of weird. <laughs> I don't want to get too close to them because I may get burned. I don't want to get burned. Well, wait a minute. What did Jesus do? He got pretty close. And what did he get in return? Killed. Who are we following? A pastor, a man, a dream, a vision of greatness, a grandeur? Or are we following Christ? some big questions here. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes tonight as we finish. In a minute, I'm going to turn this over to Pastor. But how many say, Brent, tonight, God spoke, God challenged, God convicted. I want to follow Christ, but tonight, God spoke, God convicted, God challenged me.